what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Today's episode of the show is brought to you by Einswick Dog Quip, who's our good friend, Jason Furman. Good friend? Good friend. Yeah. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, through Einswick Dog Quip, is the importer and distributor of many products, including HF Mills, Herm Springer, and he has his own line of tugs and toys and sleeves and equipment called Dogpool. Yeah, he's got a lot of stuff. Yeah, pretty much anything. If you want any dog-related training gear, talk to Jason at Einswick Dog Quip. The best way to do that is to look him up on Facebook. He can pretty much get you any dog gear you need at probably the best price that can be gotten. He's a grumpy old bastard, but he's a good bloke. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. My name's Glenn Cook and joined in studio is my regular co-host, Pat Stewart. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about diagnosing problems in training. Yeah, diagnosing and dealing with uh, through a post up yesterday in our discussion group. Mm. If you're a listener and you're not in the discussion group, you should be. It's on Facebook. It's the Canine Paradigm discussion group. I think we only have like 600 people in there, but we have several thousand people listening per episode. So what are the rest of you guys doing? Yeah, that's right. We've made it there for you. This is somewhere where we can, <laughs> we can go. discuss. Well, it's where we go behind the scenes and discuss episode issues or not issues, but anything that people want to discuss, especially like this, where people have said, you've spoken a lot about these topics. What about yeah, throwing I think the hat in the ring on some of these other ones? We're quite guilty of talking a lot about what we're interested in. I mean, because it's us. <laughs> it's yeah. Show, talk about what we want. But we're happy to, you know, people supporting us and um, love to talk about other stuff as well. I and think we've made it clear plenty of times that we want this to be the people's show. Yeah. The people in the industry, certainly, we want this to be yeah. a show that's very inclusive of topics that they want to talk about or want to hear about. Yeah. So, the more the merrier. Like, if you've got topics, I'm happy to have a backlog. Yeah, for sure. If you think there's... It's not like we're running out of things to talk about. We can just talk about things, but we just don't want to get to a point where we're saturating it with all the topics we want to talk about yeah. and then and then have it be a problem where people are saying, hey, that's great, but... Yeah. I think a lot of people sort of comment that we talk a lot about the bite sports and bite work and stuff when the reality is both of us are actually sort of pet or uh, trainers at our core, right? That's really... What yeah. That's, for, that's what pays the bills. Well, I started off in bite sports. I mean, that's where primarily I threw my hat in the ring. It was... Um, well, it wasn't sports. I should... That's not true. I started off working at ADT, which was preliminary, a working dog club. So we were exclusive to working dogs and working breeds. Like we excluded any dog that wouldn't bite. Yeah, right. So Cavaliers and all the toy <gasps> breeds and everything, the whole lot. Yeah, I named a breed. How dare I? I love Cavaliers. I want one. I love them too. Yeah, they're cute little dogs. Yeah. Cavies are cute. They're very good family dogs, by the way. If anybody is looking for good dogs with children, I know that there are some Cavies with breed issues. There are a lot of breeds with breed issues. However, a good gentle dog that people want for a family dog, a good little chilled inside dog, perfect little dog for uh, it. Many years ago, Lydia Ronenkamp, who's Chow Puppy, uh, so she was working in the inner west as a dog walker and trainer, but she's moved now. But 
she was out of town for a little while and asked me to fill in for her, which I happily did. It was fun. Uh, and I just sort of test the waters as a dog walker. Why not? She had this client, this little cavalier called Toby, right? And he was this little thug. I loved him so much so that I would pick him up first thing in the morning. <laughs> and he would accompany me on all the dog walks. Yep. And then I'd put him back like last thing of the day. Like, so he'd be out, you know, six, eight hours a day mm. with me. And he didn't go in the crate or anything. He was sat up front with me, little thug sitting on the passenger seat. A couple of times when I was walking dogs, I thought I lost him, but it was just because he was directly under my feet. Yep. <laughs> he was the best. Do you know, interesting fun fact, I cannot think of Lydia Ronenkamp without thinking of the song Lydia the Tattooed Lady. I don't know the song. It's a Groucho Marx song from the one of the Marx Brothers movies, old black and white movie. But when I was a kid, I remember my mum used to love all these types of movies when I used to, mm. um, like, it was like a, a Saturday matinees. Mm. Yeah, mum would put it on and she'd be singing it in the lounge room. So I can't think of Lydia without the song. Right. Well, there you go. Mm. All right. So, uh, I put up a post saying, diagnosing and fixing problems you're having in training. What problems have you got? We may address in the next episode. I did that yesterday and we got a bunch of of things here. Jason Furman, sponsor of the show, all-around good guy, immediately says motivation, right? And uh, that's not a question, Jason. That's just a word that you put two exclamation marks after. I said, yours or the dog? He says his. So, I think how you can motivate yourself to be more involved in training is have a goal, have a thing that you want to achieve, set a timeline and have like, with my dog, I want to achieve this. It doesn't need to be, as we just said, we talk a lot about sports and we're into the bite sports and that, but it doesn't even need to be that. It could just pick a behavior and say, this is what I want to work towards. This well, I think is- uh, Katrina Hartwell, her post was similar along the same vein about time to, tra- like actual time to be able to train my dog. Mm-hmm. I know that the two of them, you could argue that they're variable between the two of them. However, they can still tie in. I mean, there's been plenty of people that I've gone and done lessons with and their profession is restrictive of the time that they can actually spend on dogs. Mm -hmm. However, when we sit down and journal it and plan it out a little bit and you look at it and say, well, there's time here that you could do it. But motivation plays the fact in do you actually want to? Yeah. Sometimes it plays out to people like, you know, I haven't got time. I've got this with the kids. I've got work I've got to do. I've got to drive here. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And then they look at it and then you look at their downtime schedule and that's the time where they want to relax. Yeah. I said, well, can't you make that relaxation part of the dog? You know, wouldn't it be more relaxing to have a dog that's trained better, that you can enjoy more? That, And they said, yeah, well, but, you know, like it's time that I want to put my feet up and sip a glass of wine and unwind. Well, that differs from person to person. For me, relaxing is being on the motorbike mm. and other people would find that highly stressful. They'd say being on a motorbike stresses me out. You know, you've got to think about safety and you've got to think about this and that. Well, I don't. I, I relax when I'm in it. So, it's a it's personal choice. It's dealer's choice, really. But what I'm saying is if you want time, you've got to analyze those downtime moments and pick one of those times that's going to be suitable for you. Yeah. I think if you're having struggle with motivation in your own training, I, I know I said set a criteria, but maybe your criteria is too high as well. I mm. find that Sometimes you can just fuck around. You can teach your dog a lot in the fuck around time, you know? Like um, the, when you set, okay, in this session, I am going to do this. That can be for some people stressful. Now, mm-hmm. I do that for sure. That's mm-hmm. how I like to train. I like to have a, a, like a rigid training plan that I'll adapt, but I like to set one. But you can, you should never f- forget that your dog is learning at all times. Every experience is a learning experience for your dog. Anything that gets reinforced, he's going to continue to do. Mm. So you can easily fit training into just your daily life and manipulate your dog 
accordingly. You know, like you don't have to sit down and say, okay, this is the five minutes we're training, but always be aware like your dog is learning from you at all times and he's trying to get something. So be aware and control those reinforcers and lower your criteria. Just make, just fuck around for a while. There was a post that somebody put up a while ago. Hopefully we can find it all. The original poster could post it in our forum where it says that to teach a new behavior, it can take up to 400 reps. Mm. However, when it's done within the conjunction of having fun, you can lower that between 10 to 20. Right. Okay. So that goes to show that if you're enjoying yourself, you can learn something in far greater time and commit it to memory over just doing the reps. Yeah. So primarily what you're talking about is that if you change it to enjoyment, it's the same for anybody. I mean, I've met people before that say they can't enjoy anything. And when they actually do start to enjoy it, you can see that they're taking it on board. They're learning it. They're, I mean, they start having a rapid learning moment. Yeah. And it's apparently that science fact for training dogs. Yeah, right. 400 reps, but combined with something that the dog actually enjoys doing, integrating fun in learning can be changed down between 10 and 20 reps. Yeah, I'd be interested to see something on that. Mm. I'd love to see the real science behind it as well. The post was interesting. I would love to know where the actual write-up on that is or if there's a, a TEDx talk or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. Mm. It, it is interesting though, like you see, when you have a, a too rigid criteria and if you're too stressed, that you can certainly pass that on to the dog and then you control your reinforcers too tightly. Yeah, definitely. Um, for sure. And I think you notice that with people who, and Bart talks about this a lot, you see people who have very rigid behaviors, they're healing, they're sit-down stand, all that kind of thing. And the dog does it, but there's no fire, there's no heart and soul because mm. there's there's con- there's consequences and the dog's always worried. Like, not only, you know, I must do this, right? That's how the dog's sort of thinking. And so the real, the real trick then is to try and create your training along the lines of like, oh, I don't give a fuck. And then those same dogs can do tricks, you know, they might be able to do a spin. You see this with the, the way a few people teach the healing as well. Like the dog will be in the healing and be like, oh, not so into this healing. And then they let them do a spin out of the healing and they come back into it and they're, they're energized and pumped up. It's a self-rewarding yeah. behavior. Forrest does a lot of that. Yeah. yeah. So just lower your criteria and just fuck around with your dog for a little mm-hmm. while. Have fun and just fall in love with the training. And then before you know it, before too long, you'll you you're back on track. Yeah, if you can remove the conflict out of it, that's a major player in in getting in the right direction once again. Mm. All right. Well, then this one kind of ties into that, and it's the next one down the list. Sharon Wee says, uh, I know there is always room for improvement, but how do you know when you have reached the best possible outcome for a dog or if it's you, the trainer? This is hindering the dog's process. For example, when training for a sport, how do you know that your dog is performing yeah, your dog is performing is the best they can be, or are you, should you always be pushing for more? That's a good question. You've got to push outside your comfort zones to grow. That's a given. Yeah. However, that's got to be also be incremental. Yeah. The reason that we, in training, when we start with a continual schedule of reinforcement, and that is to basically build on the behavior. So the dog is convinced that the repetitive nature of this behavior is well and truly within my favor. However, then you have to change to your variable schedule quickly once that, or not quickly, once the dog determines that that behavior is set and you can see it, it's dictated in the behavior of the dog, then we've got to push to a variable schedule, which is going to create stress and conflict in the dog. The dog's going to look at you and say, what the hell is going on here? Why did you stop reinforcing me? However, when you talk about hope, that induces hope. Yeah. When the dog starts realizing that I can actually get the reinforce, I just have to try new behaviors and push myself outside it. Personally, what I tend to see anytime I'm coaching students and they come back to me and they're stressed out of their brain because they believe that they've hindered their dog's training or they've created a problem. 
when we look at the breakdown of that, especially when they show me a video of their work, we actually look at what's happened. What has happened is the incremental stages in their training are way too high. Mm. They've asked way too much of the dog. I guess one of the primary rules or laws that we talk about in in initial training is keep your increments as small as you possibly can. Mm -hmm. Again, it's dictated by the dog when you can start increasing the size of those and the regularity of those increments. If you think that training is over for the day, then that again, this ties back into the old ADT law, no more, one more time. Yeah. When you're done, you're done. Just finish. Yeah. You know, you don't have to do another one. You've finished on the best of. This is a great time to stop. Stop. Yeah. I think I've got two things to say about that. I think in training a particular behavior, if the dog is still pushy for the behavior, you can get better. So if the dog say- Yeah, but that's dictated by the dog. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if the dog's still pushing and Mm. and trying to get into the behavior, and especially if you're applying a system like the Nipopo system where you introduce some struggle to get into the behavior. For example, just from my own experience- I did this healing with the tire, right? So when I was trying to just see like how, how much further can I push the, the, the healing, I make him drag a tire in the healing so that it, it's not impossible. It's just difficult for him to do it. And so I can gauge his expression then because I can see like he's pushing through the struggle of having to drag a tire on a like weight pull harness and heal as well. So then I know like the desire to do this is very high. It is a desire to get through is because he's overcome that challenge. Mm. So that's a little bit diagnostic in how far you can push a dog. But then- I think also you you mentioned, Sharon, in the question that, for example, when training for a sport, how do you know that your dog is performing the best? So that's another aspect I think is worth exploring and that's knowing where the points are in your sport and what's worth chasing and what's not. Mm. I did the BH the other week and my critique was your dog forges a little bit, he's slow in the sits and in the about turn, he wasn't as tight as he could be. I knew those three things. and uh, But that's not PSA relevant. That's right. And mm. so they're not things. And I know how to fix those. And everybody looks at my dog healing and um, no one would say the way my dog heals is pretty. doesn't prance. But he- yeah, same with Randy. I never taught him to be I, – I yeah. taught him to be a dog that works through chaos, not through finesse. That's right. So it, mm. he's, my training is not for a pretty looking finished product, but for a reliable product because mm. that's where the points are in my sport. So if I had spent – a lot of time getting their perfect heel, like prancing head up, all that. That's great. And say the healing in a level one in PSA is worth 20 points Mm. and I would get 20 points for that. But as is with a dog that forges a little bit and rubs his shoulder on my leg a little bit, I'm still getting sort of 18 points. But he has to be able to do that while a decoy is distracting him, while there's toys all over the field. So in my timeline, if, if dogs live to be 100, I would teach – if I was going to have one dog and that was it forever, mm. uh, I would teach all those things because I have the time. But I don't have the time. So I know where the points are at in my sport and the, the points are at reliable action in the behavior – not necessarily pretty action in the behavior. So think about that with your sport. And so, like I said, the, my dog's healing could 100% be better. I know that. I've been critiqued on that in three different trials now. And they get told the healing is good, but it could be better. And I am just like, yes, thank you. <laughs> I know. Mm. But I, I have too much else to teach. I'm not going to go back to basics on that. 
So I guess what you're saying is that it's entirely up to you on what you think is appropriate for what you're trying to, yeah. what, what you're performing at. Well, but know where the points are in your sport. I think yeah. that's really important. So you might train for a really long time trying to get the perfect healing and then never conquer the jumps, you know? And I think that's especially where I see a lot of people get caught up in dogs, that they get obsessed with one behavior to the detriment of all others. Yep. And that's great if you want to, if you're just working to perfect one thing. But if you, I see so many people who I know of so many people who have never even hit the trial field because they're not yeah, going to they're not going to get exactly 99. That's exactly right. I was about to say that there's so there's so many people who perfect behavior is is becomes an obsession for yeah. them. I think that actually robs the joy of yeah. doing your work with your dog anyway. I mean if if training has become obsessive for you Maybe you've missed the point. Yeah. Because I think training is a valuable partnership between you and your dog. I think that if you are looking at it like this is creating a high level of stress for me now, at some stage that's going to leak towards the dog. Yeah. At some stage you're going to look at it and go, you know, like I'm way too stressed to put my feet on the trial ring now. Yeah. There's people I know that, to be honest, they have no place being on the trial ring because they're not ready to do it and yet they'll still do it. Yeah. And I asked them why and they said, I want to experience it. Yeah. For them, it's just the joy of doing something with their dog. And how can I rob them of that? No, exactly. I, I actually admire them for the fact that they- That's right. I respect that more yeah. than I respect someone who never hits the field because they're not going to get a perfect score. I yeah. think that get it, getting out there and having a crack and- But that, that relates to really for sport, knowing where the points are. And in our club, I quiz people like, hey, what's this worth points? What's this? Because you have to know that because say, for example, in the level two in PSA- you have to do a retrieve of an unknown item from between two decoys. Now, you might, just depending on where the item lands, who the decoy is, you might decide not to do that. I've mm. seen people do that. They throw the item and they go, nah, like they send the dog and then down and call it back immediately because they go, the risk is not worth the five points. There's a chance that just the where the item landed because of my bad throw, it's right next to the leg of the decoy. There's too much chance of him actually biting the decoy or like touching teeth to suit. Yep. So I'm just not going to get those points. But that's fine if you know how much those points are worth. It's the same as in, you know, in Mondio, the healing is worth six points. The jumps are worth 15 points. So mm. what are you going to spend more time training? You're crazy if your dog can heal super pretty but not jump very well. You're, yep, you're insane right. because that's not where the points are. That's a criteria. It has to be done. Yeah. yeah. That's my answer to that. I think there's no... Hey, no speaking exactly of which, is. how's things going in the dog spot world right now? <laughs> <laughs> Do we want to skin this chicken live on air um, or...? seems to be tumultuous, that's for sure. Mm. I still don't get it. I still don't understand it. I don't know if I ever will. I know I've been preaching on this. I'm guilty of that. Yeah. But I'm going to be and I'm going to use this medium to explain to people we are small groups of people. Yeah. I think I've made that very clear. Yeah. We're small groups of people. We really need each other. We don't have to live in each other's back pockets. We don't have to be best friends with each other. But we should try and work together. We should try not to block each other. We should try to at least communicate with respect and effectiveness and try and grow the love of this sport together and have some form of unified front where we can look after each other, protect the interest of dog sports going forward, long into the future for the enjoyment of a lot more people. Yeah. What I would say on it, <laughs> since you've brought it up and now <laughs> people are listening, if you're in Australia, you are part of a club under any association, I would be careful the amount of power you let your masters assert over you because before too long, 
you might look back and realize you have broken rules that they implied you should. And the fallout from that will go to you, not to them. So I would, if someone is telling you that you must treat another person in a way that you're not happy because it's the rules, I would ask to see that rule. And I would ask to make sure that that actually is a rule, not another person's individual and personal vendetta mm. against a person and is or it legally enforceable yeah so mm. if you're in a club and they're telling you you have to treat your members a particular way i would just check that first of all you want to do that yeah and second of all is it legal that they even imply that you do that yeah and don't be a bland-minded minion either use your own tenacity to actually go out and research things properly i mean stanley milgram effectively did a lot of work in this at some stage, I believe it was around the 1960s, when he wanted to know why people would commit atrocities to other people and find satisfaction in doing it, in performing it. And basically what he found was that when people presented themselves in a position of authority over others and they believed that they had that authority and they told them it was okay to do so, they would do it without question. Mm. Like to the effect where they would almost, well, not almost, they would exterminate another human life. Yeah. Now, I know that we're not talking about that in this sort of situation, but we are talking about people in authority telling other people that certain ways of acting towards others is okay. Yeah. And they're blindly following suit with it. Yeah. And I think what's more distressing about this is that some of these people know that it's wrong and are still doing it anyway. Yeah. I've got no respect for you. Yeah. Me you neither. really are a piece of shit. Yeah. I'm not sure if I've ever told you this story, but this is what we do. We go on tangents and tell stories. <laughs> Through a weird twist of fate many, many years ago, I found myself having a beer with the president of the Hells Angels in Sweden, mm -hmm. right, on his 60th birthday. And bizarre twist of fate that that came to be a long time ago. Don't worry, security vetting agencies, it's all in my pack. I, I, I disclose this conversation. Yeah. But so he was the president of the Hells Angels in, in Stockholm. And he was telling me about how he was formerly a Norwegian Jaeger one of their special forces type guys. And he had been in the Hells Angels and in their special forces at the same time. And I kind of laughed and was like, oh yeah, how did that go? And he goes, well, I was a very dedicated soldier. He was a warrant officer, which is like as high as you can get as an enlisted soldier. I was a very dedicated soldier, but I was also a member of the club. And I was careful never to let those lines blur. Because I was a member of the club and that was on my time. But when I was on the army's time, I was on the army's time. Yep. And a very senior dude, a skilled member of that unit. Eventually, the army came to him and gave him the, uh, the ultimatum of, you're either in the Hells Angels or we're kicking you out of the army. And he said, you know, I've given my life to the army. This is the Hells Angels is my hobby. I've given my whole life to this. I've never done anything. You have no evidence and you won't provide any because I've never done anything that is illegal. or in I've never done anything to the army that is in the interests of the Hells Angels. When I'm here, I'm on the I'm on the books. Never stolen anything, is all, which is always what people are worried about that people would do for bikey gangs. And the army just said, yeah, well, you have to choose. And he said, well, they're not making me choose. And so there was a really, for me, not that I was ever going to join the Hells Angels, but that was a very Defining important- moment. Well, he just said, he felt, and I agree, whenever, and I've carried this through in my life, very strictly- if anybody ever gives me the ultimatum, it's me or them, it's them. Because I'm never going to accept just being put in someone's pocket like that. Mm. And I think that anyone who you are really loyal to, 
will never give you that ultimatum, you know? So I just think that if people are sailing you, you have to be a part of this organization and no other organization. Yeah. I would question their motives on that and want to know why, because if you're really providing me an environment I should be a part of, why do you have to give an ultimatum? Yeah. Right? yeah that's and- actually a good point, you know, because you've told me this story before and I've reflected on it. And some of the best people I've ever met in my life have never put me in a position where I've had to, like they've said to me, choose between me or them. No. The worst people have, but the best people never have. Yeah, that's have. right. Mm. And you, and you always do choose those people. Like if you're in a position where you sort of have to and they don't tell you, then of course you choose them. They're like mm. your friends. You just stick with your friends. You stick with the, the people who you're loyal to. But when someone says you have to be or else, I'll take the or else, my friend, because mm. fuck you, you don't put me in a corner. I don't, I don't answer Nobody to puts, you. No nobody one puts, puts baby in the no corner. No one puts Patty in a corner. <laughs> anyway, that's enough on that rant. Let's move on. We can do a lot better than this. You know, and that, I think that's the takeaway message on this is that we can do a lot better in the dog sport fraternities. I, there's people out there who want to. There's some breakaway people at the moment who really want to be involved in a community. Look at Jerry Bradshaw for argument's sake. He started PSA. He's a very switched on guy. He's got the world at his feet at the moment. He's in great demand all over the world. Yet, I mean, he doesn't lord over it and possess PSA like some yeah. maniacal tyrant. Well, and, and Good I, on you, Jerry. I really exactly. a lot of respect to you, my e- friend. Exactly. And I don't – I'm cautious to just carry on about PSA, but again, it is – the rules are written. It's designed as a crossover sport. It's designed to take people in from, from other sports. The, like, say, the healing, for example, it can be done on the left or the right. Like, it's not like you must do things this way. Mm. It's, it's designed to encourage everyone to play. And I know in America where they um, – I'm sure they have their own issues that we don't know about, but there are people who compete in PSA, French Ring, Mondio Ring, and all three – and IPO, right? Mm. Because it's like, why wouldn't you? If you've got the time, energy, effort, and the right dog that can distinguish between those games and you're willing to never be the master of any of them but do very well, yeah. well, why not? And actually, you know, when I say never be the master, like Megan Hamby has a level three dog, PSA three dog. At she's, so she's through the program. So now she started doing French ring with the dog and she's yep. going to kill it in that. Yeah, perfect. So, and who, like who in their right mind would try and stop a person doing that? And PSA, not a, the, as an organization, not only encourages I think you should be proud of people it. that want to do it. Exactly. I think you actually should be really, really supportive and proud of that person and say, isn't that fantastic that you're multi-titled yeah. across different platforms? I think for sure, if you want to, like, you could do a level one in many sports, but I think if you're going to go past that in too many of them, you'd need to focus on one. Yeah. And I agree with that. But people who are better trainers than me can pull that off for sure. You know what I mean? That's like right. if you can if get all those the time and the commitment cues, and the desire and the passion and the yeah. commitment to do it, I salute you, yeah. whoever you are. But that's like I say, so anyone that says you have to be one or the other, I would be careful of that. And, and rest assured, I don't think you'll ever hear that in PSA. I don't believe that that will ever be the case. Yeah. Thank goodness for that. And for the record, and I know that you stand on this side as well, I don't want to see IPO go away. I don't want to see Mondio go away. No, I, I want to. I want to play those games. I want all of them to succeed. I want them to be sports that are available long into the future that everybody can enjoy. And I, the more clubs, the merrier. You know, I'd love to see legislation change. I'd love to see legislation more supportive. I'd love to see more clubs and more family days out with them. I think that would be wonderful. And that is where, and that that look that can only happen through cooperation. That can only happen when people band together to. You know, like any time legislation looks at cropping up, there's more of us saying, hey, I want to work with you. Not remembered for, you're a prick, I don't want to help you because you said this or you did this or you prevented me from doing that. And that's the stain that sits in people's minds. 
it's not just in dog sports. It's a lot of things. It's a stain that sits in the people's minds when the wrong type of people are chairing and holding responsibility and office where other people are basically going, I'm not going to march with you. I'm yeah. not going to support your um, your little group of whoever you are. Yeah. That is so disappointing. And it's very easily preventable. Anyway, I know we've preached on this long enough. I didn't want to make this a preachy podcast. I just wanted to say that. I- but now we have. So fuck you. We have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Emma Murdoch, number one fan. Uh, I have Canadian a question. Fan. Yeah. Well, I don't know. She's up there, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. Very supportive. I have a question about high drive working puppies throwing temper tantrums. Spicy dogs. Generally, I don't allow this kind of shit. I.e. holding the dog and throws a tantrum. Will not let go until they calm the F down. You can swear, Emma. It's okay. Is this the same <laughs> tactic with a high drive working puppy? I don't want to kill the fight, but obviously they have to learn to tolerate being handled, etc. Well, first of all, Mrs. Murdoch, spicy is my word. So yes, just, just I'm, be I'd, careful. I'd put a patent on that. So just be careful. Look, I, I don't. <laughs> I, then Kaylee actually contacted me and told me about what the deal was with her little dog that these two are talking about, and it's a Bouvier, which is exciting. That it's a it's quite it's quite oh, spicy yeah. Bouvier. In my experience- Don't see many Bouviers. Yeah, no, not good ones. Bouvier de Flanders? Is yeah, that I what guess. they're called? I, I think so, yeah. It's just redirect that as much as possible because I think there, of course, you can try and extinguish it and, you know, you might correct a little dog or whatever. But for me personally, if your intention is to work, I don't like to put it, I don't like to get rid of anything that I might want later. And I, I don't like to dance that risk of extinguishing something that I want later on. So I try and redirect it. Depends it depends on the owner of the dog. That's the- I think that's probably yeah. a, the answer that anybody needs is like for somebody like you, your answer is perfect. Yeah. For a pet dog person, that wouldn't be yeah. tolerated. Yeah, well, I think so she's talking specifically about working dogs because yeah. it, I agree with a, with a pet dog, I would not tolerate that and yeah. I would find a way to extinguish it as soon as possible. Yeah, otherwise that dog's going to be on the endangered list quick yeah. smart. But for a, a working dog, I would try and redirect that as much as possible. And then I actually wrote, I've got to try and find this video, but in the video series that I have with Valerie, mskennels.com, there's my plug, Ghost was two weeks older than her and we did a lot of the practice of how we would film and how we would set up and that sort of thing on Ghost before Val. And we have a video of him at six weeks old. Like, have you ever seen a dog with a temper tantrum? Six-week-old puppy just legit trying to kill me. Like, mm. would would have... If he were an adult dog and had the capacity in that moment, he would have killed me for sure. No one kills ghosts but ghosts. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I've got to try and find the video, but I've got it somewhere and I'll post it if You've I can You've got to get t-shirts it. made of that. No one kills ghosts but ghosts. Yeah. 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 So what did I do in that case? I just laughed. He's a six-week puppy. I laughed and I was like, this is fantastic. I think I actually looked at the camera and said, oh, God, don't do that on screen or you'll make me look stupid. Mm. But that's it. But because I I can redirect that later and that is the temperament that I want is a dog that frustrates easily and and not not redirects, but I wasn't his person then. So he wasn't redirecting. He was just directing. Yeah. So- yeah, I I would just try and redirect that into something that you want that expression into and be careful not to extinguish it if you want that later. And now, as I say, there are people who are way better than me that can extinguish that on, on themselves or a person or whatever and keep it into the prey item. Uh, but I think you walk a very fine line in that. And that's why I talk to people about, you know, I've had clients that have had really nice, highly prey-driven dogs that just won't bite anything because they've corrected them for pulling washing off the line and that sort of thing. Yeah. And the, the dog's made the association and generalized that quickly and easily. And then a year later, won't even bite a rag that I'm flying around, mm. has a lot of desire and intention to bite it, but just won't because of the inhibition that was put in as a puppy. So I think you just have to be careful. Like I say, I don't like to risk it, but other, I've seen other people pull it off. 
Yeah, there's times where you have to look at it because some of these little dogs get a little bit, talking about being spicy, they get a little bit too energetic about biting your flesh. Mm. Like you'll offer them a toy and they'll go, no, fuck that toy, I'm going onto your arm. Mm. I think at those times you've got to work at extinguishing that slightly in the fact that you just, personally all I do is just give the dog a timeout. Mm. So if the dog is going back at my arm, I'll just give the dog a timeout. And when the dog wants to load into something else, I'll bring out a prey item. And as soon as the dog will start playing with that, the game's back on again. So just teach the dog the variation between the two of them. If you're going onto my skin, you're going away. If you're going onto the item, you can stay it as long as you want. Yeah. And give them the opportunity to make better choices in their behavior. Yeah. And even in the method I was saying as well, there's a day and time, and this depends on every dog, where I no longer accept that. It's no longer okay to turn on me. And if I offer you the toy, you must take it. It's not a case of like, you know, if my dead arm that I'm not moving around keeping any prey on, if you choose that over the toy that I'm trying to excite you with, there's a day where I no longer accept that. And I say, hey, exactly as you say, like this is the end of our interaction. You go away and when you're ready to to express yourself the way that I is agreeable to me, then you can play again. Yeah. You've got to be careful with drive suppression. I agree with that. But At the same token, there's no point in being a handler that your dog finds joy in turning on you and ripping in in your arm. You are in trouble because it only starts to elevate into other behaviours and it starts becoming serious when the dog decides that it needs to vent on someone and thinks, well, I've done it on you all my life, so Mm. there's no problem in doing it. Yeah. All right. Amy Corbo, handler focus slash motivation. But he's a borzoi, so I have that sight hound, I don't want to pay attention thing working against me as well. This is where I sort of, I liken it to relationship a little bit, but I don't try and get focus. I just make it something, I make it a gate the dog has to go through. Mm. And so I never ask a dog for focus. I'll put, I'll put it on cue later, but I wait for it to happen and it will. If, the, if there's desire to get your reinforcer, if, if there is no desire to get your reinforcer, you're using the wrong reinforcer. Yeah. But- I don't try and solicit any focus on me. I just wait for it. It will happen. And usually through frustration, especially if the dog knows, hey, you have my thing. You know, people, I've seen people talking about engagement as well. And they're like, look how engaged my dog is. And especially they'll say it with Malinois. I go, no, that's a Malinois that knows you have a thing it wants. Mm. That's, that's what you're looking at here. That's not engagement. If you had nothing, then I would agree that's engagement. But that's just a Malinois that has learned the pathway to getting the thing is via focus. And so just make it that and don't try and push it. When people, I think that's where people go wrong and they can create an aversion to focus as well is when you try and solicit it too much, it will come. It will. Ha- it has to. It, eventually the dog will look at you, especially if, if they know you have what, you, what it wants mm. or you control access to what it wants. And if you don't either have it or control access to it, you are lost. That is what training is. Do you know what that sounds like? What's that? Extending your increments. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. If you analyze a lot of work where you do it when you're sitting down with people, when you actually watch back what they're doing, mm-hmm. nine times out of 10, you can look at it and say your increments are, are too big. Mm. They're too demanding. Yeah. Or they're just too gray. The yeah. dog just doesn't understand the processes. Yeah. Like you've gone, you've gone into a five minute session where really what you needed was a minute session. Yeah. Just on working on that focus. And th- that can be an exciting game for the dog. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we're at the same point with a dog in the club that has just been doing all the bite work. The obedience has been taught separate and the bite work has been taught separate and now we're bringing the two together. Mm. The handler asks for heel. It could take a long time to get there, but the second there is any focus, there's eye contact. It's game on. Bang, straight into the bite. Yep. And it, the first rep, we all sat there and watched. It was like, you know, maybe three minutes of the dog 
not doing it correctly. And then you get a half second of the correct behavior straight into mm. it. Three reps later, the dog's doing it, offering it. Yep. Because they just got to find that initial trigger point. Yeah. They've learned, oh, this is this yep. is the path to get the thing I want. Simple, right? Yeah. Just don't extend your increments, guys. I mean, I know that sounds so simplistic in the explanation, but it often prevents a lot of problems in training. There's, it doesn't matter if dogs are doing detection work, whether they're doing focus, whether they're doing healing, whether they're doing bite work. I mean, so many times when I've when people come back to me, especially NDTF students, when they give me a call or send me a video to show me a complex skill that they're doing, which includes all of the above, which I've spoken about. Anytime you're chaining shaped behaviors together, we call them a complex relationship or mm-hmm. behavior. A lot of times when I look at it and they're, they're breaking the chain by asking for too many increments. There was a good Fleetwood Mac song called Never Break the Chain. And it's the same. Esther Schalk says the same thing. I'm totally in a grants. Don't break your chains. Yep. Shape your behaviors. Chain them together when they're ready. Keep your increments small enough that the dog can keep up with it. It's like playing music. If you've ever played music before, you start on the basics. Okay. So it's just basic one finger notes that you can just pound along with. And eventually you start to make it more complicated by bringing more fingers into the actual Mm. process, whether you're playing guitar, whether you're playing piano or any wind instrument, whatever it may be. You just start with very, very basics incrementally, build yourself up. When you can start hearing the tune, when you're starting to enjoy the process, then you can start to make it more complicated. That's when you start to push yourself. That's when you start to say, I'm ready. You know, like this is easy now. Once it becomes easy, then start adding minor complexity to it yep. and then build it up from there. Yeah. Well, that's the opening paragraph or chapter of uh, The Talent Code is the girl playing the, the violin. Yes. Uh, and that that's a really good, excellent analogy to dog training. And I'm, I'm sure that Daniel Cole didn't, wasn't expecting this would be the Bible of so many dog trainers. But mm. there's a part in Thanks, that- Thanks, Michael Bellin. Yeah. There's a part in that where Clarissa, I think her name is. Yeah, it is. Clarissa, um, you're right. It's on It's on YouTube. There's a video. I think it's like the girl that practiced, did three months practice in six minutes or something, if you look at it on YouTube. Yeah. But so what it is, is there's a girl playing the violin and- Put it up. Yeah, I'll find it. Mm. But she's playing the violin and this is how I approach all of my dog training in that she does like the first three notes of this song. So obviously she knows how to play violin prior to this. This is not her first time playing. She's learned the basics. Mm. The first three notes of the song go quite well. The fourth note she gets wrong. Now you're faced with two options here, right? What people do is a lot of people in dog training just go, okay, the fourth note didn't go so well. Onto the fifth, they play the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. That it's all going well. The ninth note, they they don't mm. quite hit, and they keep playing. You made a good point of this at training. Yeah, um, well, about this three is months a, ago. That's right. This is an analogy I use all the time, mm. and. If you've if you tuned out because you're sick of us waffling about the dog sport industry, this is probably worth tuning back yeah, in. Yeah, get for. back in. Yeah, <laughs> listen in again. Yeah. Sit down with your coffee. Um, listen. So that if you play the song like that, you will be able to play the song very quickly, right? If you just play notes incorrectly and skip over them and just keep going to the next one, before too long, you will play that song, but you will never play it well. Mm. The way to train, if you go the first one, two, three notes are all good, and the fourth note is incorrect, you stop, address the problem of the fourth note, figure out what happened between three and four to cause you the problem, then go back and do one, two, three, four, okay, got that correct, now on to five, now on to six. So it's per, it's what that's where that term perfect practice comes in. Yep. Perfect practice is not mistake-free practice. It's where mistakes get made. And you individually address each mistake as it happened, Mm. fix it, master it before you move on. It's an important bridge point too, isn't it? Because once you know that you're getting it right, 
it kickstarts you into the next chapter of your learning yeah. in a better frame of mind. Yeah. You're not thinking, shit, I've made that. And I mean, I've heard musicians play before using the example of musicians where they've made mistakes and you can see them frown when they get into that point. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it puts them in a, a mindset of being stressed mm-hmm. where if you practice the way that you've just explained, they don't suffer that stress. They yeah. go through the procedure and they feel good about the whole thing. Yeah. So then to relate that to dogs in exactly that same fashion. So imagine you're healing and you're, you're talking about focus and you take one, two, three steps, position's good, everything's good, the dog's looking at you, everything's going fine. And on that fourth step, he dips his head and then comes back up and you keep taking five, six, seven, and then you reward on the ninth step. That dipping of the head goes unanswered. So what happens is, first of all, the dog learns that healing is not, well, Best case, the dog learns that healing is not necessarily that my head has to be in a particular position. Healing is like walking around beside you and the head is not an important part of the criteria because it changed along the way. That's the best you can hope for. Worst case is that the dog thinks, I am meant to dip my head at the fourth step. And then you're in real trouble because the dog, then you've got like a superstitious behavior and the dog's going to continue to do that. So that's why for me, if... I get to, say if my dog has previously healed nine steps and I get to three or four or whatever and he dips his head down, I must address that. There has to be a consequence for that. Now, that might be that we reset. There could be many ways to address that consequence and we probably don't need to go into that here, but there has to be, it has to be addressed and it has to be communicated to the dog that that was not incorrect. That was not correct. That was an incorrect action. Now, we either start again and keep going or we can pull the dog back up into behavior with a consequence he wants to avoid in the future. Mm. That's what I would do if the dog already knows the healing. If this isn't a learning phase, this is a applying consequences in a uh, training phase. But that's really, I think that answers, well, I hope that answers your question because we talk about. Yeah, well, you can't be operant until you know what you're doing. Yeah, there you go. Mm. Boom. Unless, before we move on to the next one. Yes. The only time in teaching phase that you can be operant is when you're teaching to abstain from a behavior that you already know how to do. Explain that. For example, if you're in a teaching phase exercise for the dog jumping up on you, this is a behavior that you may or may not have encouraged. Nonetheless, it's a behavior that's exhibited. So it's a behavior that you want the dog to abstain from. Mm -hmm. So early in the phase of training, you can punish that behavior because you can say to the dog, I don't want this behavior anymore. I want it to go extinct. If you're training for an action-related behavior, so a, a skill that the dog doesn't know the mechanics of something it doesn't actually understand, such as how to do a sit based on the English human language. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're we're combining all that together and we're trying to get the dog to understand how to do that, whether by luring the dog in position or guiding the dog physically in position. We can't correct the dog for not knowing how to do that and follow along because the dog's Primarily going, well, I don't understand it. I don't know what you yet want mm-hmm. until the dog does. And until it transitions to a point where it does actually know it, then you can you can be operant with the dog. Mm-hmm. The dog can then learn their consequences for performing or not performing the behavior. Yeah. I understand that. Cool. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. The next two, I think they came in within a couple minutes of each other and I want to address them together. So I'm going to read them both before we address them. So Kirsty Fuller says, I'd like to hear you talk about maturity in a dog and how that impacts various behaviors. When is it a case that the dog not being right for a particular learning? I'd like to hear you speak of the value of time needs time, her new favorite Bart Bell quote. And Matthias Lenz says, in terms of fear stages in puppies, how do you decide whether it's a fear stage 
and you should back off and wait it out, assuming that's your strategy with fear periods versus work a dog through it. So I think both of those dovetail together pretty well. Mm. And Katrina then went on to have a little bit of a discussion with Matias about bloodlines. And I think for sure, the more knowledge you can get on the bloodline of your dog, the better, because that certainly will affect the the fear stages and when they come. Mm. I know for sure in in Malinois, I know of a few different bloodlines that have really significant and different fear stages. And I know like of particular bloodlines like that you would say some of the best Malinois I've ever seen, or maybe the best female Malinois I've ever seen in my life in real life, had such a significant fear stage at sort of 10 months old that you would think she was never going to be any good for anything, Yep, which is uncommon. So I think that is really important knowing the bloodlines. And then that sort of dovetails into what Kirsty's saying as well. I think also knowing the bloodlines and when they'll mature, but then you have to read the individual dog as well. So yeah, that's it's, right. I mean, it's you nice have- to have a map, but you have to also go by what you see on the ground. Well, yeah, you can have siblings in a litter and still have unique timeframes when dogs will yeah. go through a fear related stage. I actually find the first one just through observations is around about eight weeks. Yeah. Which unfortunately is the time that they actually start going into new homes. You mm-hmm. know, this is the accepted ANKC policy on when a puppy can go into a new home. It's yeah. based on information from the veterinary institutions around the world, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's based on what people feel is the best, most prepared, most mature age for a puppy to leave its litter and, and go into home. This is a one man's opinion. Mm. I would debate that and I would say I personally feel it's seven weeks. Yeah, I agree. I think that eight mm. weeks is too late. Yeah, I think eight weeks is too late. I think that the time why well, I feel that the time that the dog is having its first experience with fearful behaviour experiencing a little bit of anxiety about the world. It's better to be in a familiar environment with mm-hmm. people it knows that it can take solace in, Yeah, not be rewarded for. Let's make that very clear. I never reward fearful behavior. I only support the pup by showing the pup that it can come to me and I'm reliable in the way that I'll work with the dog. So basically all I want the dog to know is that being part of the new pack system that you're developing, and I choose those words carefully because they've been bastardized around the industry, but the dog nonetheless still sees you as a part of the new group that it's it's forming with. If it understands that in times that it is feeling stressed, that it can relate to you and it can find comfort within your presence, I think that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I always think that's a great thing. I'm very, like I said, and I will use that as a caveat, I'm very careful not to reward or promote stressful behaviors and anxious behaviors in dogs. Mm. But I do want the dog to know. Supporting and rewarding is- Different things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that gets lost on some people sometimes as well. That's right. It does. And people, there's, oh, geez, there's been some forum discussions on this that have just gone way too long. and, And some of the answers become way too opinionated and very, very silly with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So I think what would answer both of your questions is if you're training in a style and method, certainly the way I like to train, and this is the the, one of the key characteristics of the Nipopo system is that the dog pushes you active dog, reactive handler. Yeah. You will never push a dog too far doing that. It's impossible. Mm. If the dog is always still pushing into the work and saying, Hey, I want to do more. You can never push a dog that is pushing you too far. I mean, you might physically, if you've got an extreme dog that will work till it's dead, you might physically work it too hard. But mentally, you'll never push a dog in a situation where it's not right for if it's 
if your training method requires an active dog and a reactive handler, mm. if you're in a training method where you're trying to solicit behaviors from a dog and then reward them rather than letting the dog offer you behaviors and then rewarding them, then you risk going too far for sure because you can ask too much of a dog and push them through things. But I think if you're just letting the dog give you the behaviors and then you reward them, it is impossible to put too much pressure on the dog in, in that model. And then as a, as the dog ripens and you'll notice it, so like say for example, flooding, I would use flooding very rarely on a young dog. I wouldn't do it. I would let the dog, you know, experience and counter condition sort of things. Right. Whereas my dog, I can flood him all the time now mm. because I know like there are, the resilience has been built up to the point where if he sees a situation, he doesn't know, I can just go, Hey bro, I'm forcing you into this. And he's, he goes, there's a, a level of trust and acceptance and toughness where he goes, okay, well, you've never put me in a situation where I've been hurt before. You're not going to do it this time. And that's true. I'm not. So I can get away with flooding now that he's two years old. I don't think that I would have until he's maybe 18 months old, nor would I have tried if that makes sense. Mm. So yeah, that's really, I think, to answer both of your questions, put yourself in a training model where you need an active dog and you are a reactive handler. That's an EPOPO system and many other systems. I'm not saying that's the only one, but that's really, if you can keep that as a criteria in your training method, you will never, ever push the dog too far. I think this is where the box training comes in yeah. um, quite successful for young puppies as well. Yeah. So when we're talking about social behavior, one of the things that we always encourage people to do is get your puppies out to experience the world. And we've talked about this in selecting and raising puppies in that episode. One of the things that I try and encourage people to continually do, and Scott and Fuller did this, well, Dr. John Paul Scott, he was the primary researcher on this with John Fuller. And what they found is that the more active exposure that you do with puppies, the more that you take them out into pleasant environments, the more worldly you're going to make that dog. Mm -hmm. So the less likely you are to have conflicting situations where you're going to have high stress moments with the dog. The more worldly, it's the same with people. The more worldly you become, the more knowledge you acquire, the more you're able to deal with any situation that you're confronted with. The more languages you know, the less stress that you face when you're meeting somebody who actually speaks to you in a different language. You're able to carry a conversation with them. The more you know about cultures, the more you have understanding and empathy of the way people act and behave in the certain things they do. So let's relate this back to dogs. When we're talking about young puppies and we're talking about taking them out and exposing them, what we want them to do is have as many positive experiences as we can possibly expose them to. The more worldly they become, the more accepting of things that are going to pop up in our day-to-day -day life, and especially for us working in high-stress situations like dog sports and especially in things like PSA, mm -hmm. I mean, where it's controlled chaos. We want those dogs from an early age to have incremental positive exposure to them. Yeah. And this helps them deal with things. I do want my dogs to have stress. And again, to echo this phrase that I've used before, the difference between the poison and the cure is in the dose. Mm. It's always, again, and I, I know I've said this before in the podcast, but it's incremental. Yeah. Everything is. If you have a lot of stressful moments that are mild stress related, at some point in their time, they're going to work out, I can deal with this. I can deal with it. If you exert that and you make it too stressful for the dogs, they'll find that they want to retreat from it. It actually weakens the system in the dog. Yeah. As it would in a child as well, or even adults. Too much stress too often induces, well, I mean, this is where 
depressive episodes come from. This is where anxiety comes from. I mean, yeah. it can be genetic. It can be epigenetic. It can be it can be diet related. There's a lot of things. But when we're talking about the the consequences of behaviour, we've got to be mindful and thoughtful about how we have our overall approach to it. Yeah. On those lines, I like to capitalize on the ignorance of puppies as much as possible. Now, I know a lot of people, Mm. you know, get rescues or whatever, and they come with the baggage that they have and you have to deal with it. That's fair. But if you get a puppy, no matter where it's from, if it is under 16 weeks, you have an opportunity to create a better dog than you would if you didn't take it out. And so, like I say, when I have puppies, they literally go everywhere with me. And I have have clients, you know, I had a puppy with me a while, a few weeks ago that I bring to training. I take it everywhere because the guy's away for the weekend, gives me the puppy. And now, okay, I'm going to, now flooding is not the right word, but I'm going to take you everywhere. Exposure. Yeah. I'm going to expose you to everything I expose that I see. And like I say, Mm. I've said it many times when I have puppies that I choose pretty regularly, they live in my car, they go everywhere with me. I get them out, they Mm. experience it, they get back in. But there's a couple of things. So what I see is people as well trying to excite and lure a puppy through an environment so this was something i faced a difficulty with remy when he was young he used to like to bite the lead and i never i didn't for reasons we've already spoken about in this episode i didn't really stop him but i had difficulty socializing him because he was always in drive Mm. i like to and not it, it didn't become an issue with him i'm lucky but i like to keep the dogs when i'm socializing them in the lowest state of arousal as possible for two reasons. The first is I don't want the dog to just be so aroused that they don't actually experience the environment, which is what used to happen with Remy a little bit. Like yep. he could have been on the surface of the moon. He doesn't see the, the world. Yeah. He could, he, he could be on the surface of the moon while he was playing tug with that lead. He yep. could give a fuck. Yeah. So In effect, I wanted, it's like a portable box. Yeah. Mm. I, so I wanted him to be like, hey, man, I need you to stand next to the street while a, a truck goes past and you feel that wind and all that. And while I'm doing that, he's like, give me the lead, give me the lead. So yep. it really wasn't effective. But fortunate that he, um, because of that also, you know, that same neural pathway makes him not care about anything. Mm. Um, but so I want the puppies out there in the lowest state of arousal that I can get. And because I do control the environment and I do protect the dog, nothing bad will happen to the dog. And you hear the people like, oh, well, maybe an off-leash dog comes or whatever. Well, that's on you. You shouldn't have gone to that place. You shouldn't have... You know, you you shouldn't have allowed. You can control people. Oh, but people want to pat the dog. Well, tell them to fuck off. Mm-hmm. Like you control all these things. So, if your puppy does have a bad experience, that's on you. That's your fault, yep. right? So you need to ensure that the puppy only has positive experiences and takes it everywhere that you can. Don't take your puppy to dog parks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't. No, but I wouldn't. That's a, that. I agree with that. I yep. wouldn't take my puppy. Yeah, to dog no, parks. you wouldn't. But I would. I certainly would expose my puppy to dogs that are good with them. I, yep. I'm very lucky. I have. That, that like yeah, that. you must. Yeah, and I I said it when we we're talking about this once before, and I say it again. People mm. should get in contact with me if they want, because you need to have a network of people that have dogs that you know and can trust. Well, and every I, experience I have they have, good or bad, is a is a, a development experience. of neurological pathways. Yeah, and so you want um you want to set your dog up with the right neurological pathways. Yeah. And then to go one step further, what worries me is when I see people luring their puppies, either with the ball, the toy, whatever, through things that the dog is worried about. Mm. And I feel like, first of all, the dog doesn't necessarily really overcome that. They just have a higher desire to get the thing rather than actually learn that the thing is not a problem for them. Now, a lot of the time it can work and I'm not saying it doesn't. But it's better to reward them rather than lure them. Yeah, like let them experience it and then come back to me and get the reward. Yeah. And the risk that you face is imagine you have your ball or whatever your reinforcer is that you're trying to convince the dog to go through 
let's say it's a grate, right? Let's just pick a thing. Yeah. The dog to walk over a grate and you're trying to convince the dog and you're exciting it and trying to get it to cross the grate and it doesn't. Well, now your dog just learned that uh, when things are worrying me, even if my reinforcer is on the other side, if I don't go to it, it's not the end of the world because I'll just get it later. And the dog is practicing failing mm. and practicing giving up. You're putting a rep in that bank, right? So I don't ever want to – if my dog's not going to go on the grate, that's fine. I, we'll work on that. We'll figure that out. It's, we'll come up with a plan to address that. But what I don't want is for him to not only not go on the grate – but have a practiced, a rehearsed rep of giving up, of seeing his reward item and saying, nah, it's not worth the risk. Because I want him later, and this is with all dogs, not just like a working, sporting, competing, whatever dog, with all dogs, I want the their ultimate reinforcer to be something they will never give up trying to get. That's 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 the ultimate goal, really. That's that gameness that we're all trying to really put into our dogs, where they work for the reinforcer despite the difficulty that is there. Mm. And through increments, I'll teach the dog, you have to work harder, you have to work harder, you have to work harder to get it. And if they get a rep of giving up, then that's a problem. That is practicing failure. And I don't want to practice failure. Good points. And yeah, this is- Very good points. This is, you know, I was discussing this recently with someone that, you know, again, we just did that BH. That's like seven minutes of healing, right? And I'm pretty sure that my dog did, I wasn't looking at him the whole time, but he did not dip his head once. And what I noticed was that throughout his attitude improved. The longer we went without being reinforced, the more power came into his healing because it was an extinction burst of sorts, right? Mm. But it was that he, he he can't imagine a day until now where I'm going to take him out on the field and make him heal around for seven minutes and not reinforce the shit out of him. Like, mm. And so the whole time at like six minutes, he's like, holy fuck. The reinforcer for this is going to be outrageous because you have never asked for so much goddamn work from me without the the reinforcer being worth it, right? Like worth getting through this. And unfortunately, it, and you only had a week prep, so you couldn't um, yeah working through. But I mean, we're training all the time. But, I, but do you know what I mean? Like this is what the 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 type of training you want is the dog to never go. Oh well, I'm not going to get it. Yeah, I never want my dog to go. Oh well, it's not going to happen. Yeah. And if you're doing that with a puppy because you're trying to get them over something, they might not be ready to go over the grate, and yep. that's fine. Mm. You address that another time. What you never want your dog to go hope is, is oh the well, key. I won't get hope it. Hope is yeah. the key. You always yeah. want your dog channeling hope. Yeah, that so, I don't know when it's going to come. But it's no big deal. I hope I'll get it yeah. at some stage. And again, this is Nipopo, and that the 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 harder the struggle, the greater the reinforcer. And so when my dog was healing for seven minutes, he's mm. going, holy shit, you are going to reinforce the shit out of me. This is going to be the best. I'm going to get to bite someone. I'm going to get to play with the ball. I'm going to get a full meal of steak because you are asking so much of me. The reward certainly has to be that. And mm. then because as it goes on, instead of going like, oh, I'm sick of this, he goes, oh, the, this is going longer. I'm more excited by the idea of it because surely the reward is going to be better. And then I have to at the end of it say sorry my friend that was a lie i brought i brought no ball onto the field with me you get nothing <laughs> we'll repair that relationship later i love um and i rewatched it the other day because we had an ndtf group in and i love sapolsky's model when he talks about the dopamine burst mm-hmm. when he talks about when you add the whole concept of maybe in there yeah and it just blows the dopamine through the roof mm-hmm. and he gives a an explanation of how people go through basic life you know like I hope I'll get into a good school and I hope I'll get into a good job so I can get into a nice home and then eventually get myself into a nice nursing home. And he says, but it doesn't stop with just 
dying he said yeah. because then you know like if i'm a good person then i hope i'll get into heaven and mm. it it extends far beyond that so the whole cycle of hope just keeps you yeah. excited till right to the end of your I, life i think he's quite a outspoken atheist sapolsky and he, t- he laughs about there is no evidence that you've never been reinforced that once you, if you live a good life, you'll go to heaven. There is no evidence of that. But, but it's the hope are, of it. Yeah, people are still striving towards it. It's the it. hope of it, yeah. I hope to be in Valhalla someday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then there's there's a few of the final questions here that relate to anxiety, and I think we've touched on that a little bit. Uh, anxiety mm. in dogs, separation anxiety and that. And and I think that we can sort of address anxiety as a, as a whole. I personally feel... I mean, you could probably speak to this better than me, but I think that anxiety is a lack of control of the outcome. And so uh, that certainly makes, when you have no control, you feel like you're, uh, you can't find the pattern, you don't know why things are happening, that can can yeah, certainly induce the, anxiety. That's actually the problem with anxiety is there's no prediction to anxiety. It's yeah. the feeling that something might happen. Mm-hmm. Somebody said, if you're feeling depressed, you're living in the past. If you're feeling happy, you're living in the moment. If you're feeling anxious, you're obsessing about the future. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times where I've seen anxiety-related behaviour in dogs, again, when Katrina talked about knowing the bloodlines of dogs, I mean, anxiety is something that can be passed through bloodlines. Yeah. So is depression. I mean, if, you, if you're a depressive, anxious type of personality, look to your family line sometimes. Yeah. You know, there's a history of mental illness within the family lines, and it can be poor breeding practices in the dogs as well. So we need to first identify is this something that we're passing through breeding practices? Therefore, should we stop breeding these puppies? Yeah. You know, is this something that we actually should stop? Because I've actually seen where people have got an anxious female and they'll introduce a defensive, I'm choosing my words carefully, but anxious defensive male Mm. and therefore they get anxious puppies out of it. And then everyone's wondering why are these dogs so thin-nerved? Why are they so reactive in their behaviour? Whereas sometimes when it's brought on, it can be constant poor exposure. Uh, It can be critical period issues. Mm. So you have to actually look at how could this have possibly happened? Is it a genetic problem? Is it something that we've done by listening to the advice of never taking our puppies out and exposing them to the environment before Mm. they're 16 weeks of age? What could it be? One thing that we'd look at, and again, this goes back again to the Selecting and Raising Puppies podcast, but one thing we've got to look at is, is this occurring because we've fucked up the critical period of development with the dogs? Mm. Have Have we waited far too long to do something? Or has this occurred because I've got a bloodline issue? Now, the problem with either one of those is that once that is induced, so if it's a genetic issue, that's a problem. Yeah. If it's outside the critical period, that's a problem also. We look at, um, and we have done in the past when we've looked at problems with dogs, and if it's something that's occurred within the critical period of development, the likelihood of moving through it is quite good. Mm. You can be more successful. If it's happened outside the critical period of development, well, that's a whole different kettle of fish. That's something that um, almost certainly tells us that the problem's never going to go away. Mm. We can reduce the effect of it. And I saw in that post when, uh, was it Matthias who was talking about it? Yeah. I think Matthias was talking. I think talk- it's Matthias. Matthias? Yeah. Yeah, Matthias. Correct us, Matthias. Yeah, yeah, Matthias. Yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to know how to pronounce your name correctly. But- I think that he made a point of, of talking about dogs on medication, like mm-hmm. his dislike for it. 
I've got to put it out there. I'm not a person who favours pharmaceutical industries. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a point where pharmaceutical industries, they're like most companies. They have a point of ethics that they're happy to go over to make shareholders rich, including themselves. So the ethics point, I could be proven wrong here. There might be a scientist out there who's going to say, hey, Glenn, that's not always true. The problem is a lot of times people are reaching for pharmaceuticals way too early. Yeah. And I've seen that in behavioral consultations in the animal industries. There's been clients that have come in here before and they said, I've gone into a behavioral consult in Sydney and before I sat down, there was a script handed to me mm. without even looking at the dog. It was basically, here you go. And they said, well, don't you want to see the dog? And they said, I've heard enough. You know, like in your explanation, it just determines that this is the outcome. Mm. Well, we've had a lot of anxious dogs that have come here before, dogs that have suffered from separation anxiety, and what we've basically done is worked on a extinction model with the dog, mm. is taught the dog that the processes or the behaviour that the dog is exhibiting will never be reinforced through being anxious and carrying on. When the dog is quiet, when the dog is, is calm, that's when we're reinforcing behaviour. And again, you prevent this a lot with your puppies by starting work in the box, What I used to do with my pups, and people have challenged me on this concept before, but what I've done with my puppies in the past is I've taken them locations, I've tied them to a tree, I've let them have like a little extinction burst, I've let them experience a little low-level anxiety about being tied up and being away from me. And when the dog is calm and is exploring alternate behaviours, I immediately stop what I'm doing and I go straight over and reinforce the puppy. Mm. So the, the dog starts learning independence at times, is highly reinforceable or a change in behavior, a change in mindset. So what I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking for a cure. What I'm looking for is an alternate behavior. So the dog looking, like we do always, is it switching from one behavioral, one behavioral play to another. So when I can see that the dog is thinking about its frame of mind, is thinking about, or its state of mind, I should say, better choice of words. When it's thinking about its state of mind, I can see that the dog is, is thinking about an alternate behavior immediately I'll reinforce that behavior. Mm. If I've got a clicker in my hands, I'll click the dog. If I haven't got a clicker, I'll mark it verbally. Or I've, if the dog doesn't even know what a marker is at this point in time, I'll go and let the dog off the lead. Mm-hmm. Or I'll take the dog out of the location it wants to be in or put the dog in a location it wants to be in. Yeah, just reinforce it somehow. Reinforce it every single time. Uh, what do you think about the idea that anxiety is contagious? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I had this client once. Yeah, I believe that. I had this client uh, – well, long story short, it was she told me the dog was going to bite me and all of this, and I was like, "Let him off! He ain't going to bite me. It, nothing's going to happen." And then there was all this reactivity issues around the doorbell, and I went through all these different ways we were going to potentially um, manage that and um, counter condition it, and blah blah blah. And then while we're talking, someone came over and the doorbell went off, and what I noticed immediately was that the the client had like a minor panic attack, and then the dog looked at her. And then went ballistic and ex- exhibited all the behaviors she told me that it would. And I was like, hey, do you happen to have any like mental health issues going on yourself? And she's like, oh, yeah, like I've got all these things. And I was like, the dog's fine. There's mm-hmm. no issues with the dog. There's a rescue and he'd only started, like he was fine for, you know, six, typical story. The dog was great for six weeks and then changed totally and was now a problem. Um and it was very clear that that dog was just react. It was her. It was the doorbell was not the trigger. Mm. It was she was the trigger for all the behaviors. And I was like, you know, this is like I can help with his triggering off of you, but this is something maybe you and I'm I'm 
I'm not a people's fixer. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mike Suttle made a very good point of this a while ago when he was talking about uh, his observations in raising puppies. And that and one point that he was very adamant about is he never lets his puppies watch the mother in a stressful situation. Mm-hmm. So if she's like, he won't have somebody come around and the, and the bitch get quite anxious and start flying mm-hmm. around all over the place. He never lets the pup see that sort of – even if if it's a situation where she might be anxious about something, yeah. he just won't let the pups experience yep. it. You're an army guy. You know yourself. Like if your leadership is failing, yeah. like if somebody is out in front of all the guys go, we're all going to die. <laughs> it's a fuck situation. Run for your life. Well, yeah, yeah. it you know, nine times out of ten, the troop will scatter. Yeah. They're basically a headless chicken at that point in time. They've yeah. got no direct clear leadership anymore. And we uh, it's the same with our kids. If our kids look to their parents and they can see mum and dad in a stressed and agitated situation, they're thinking, holy shit, you know, I'm, I'm a vulnerable little child. Yeah. How am I supposed to defend and react towards this situation? Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely, I believe it's contagious. Yeah, that, that army, uh, that's a very good analogy, actually, because we found that with platoon commanders who, I mean, if there's any that were listening, don't get too upset at me, but they don't, in a gunfight don't really have that much tactical control because the four team commanders will be they're the senior guys that have done it before and they will take control but you'll find that even just the way that they speak over the radio can affect the whole outcome mm. even though they're not really in a position to to affect it but you have a good one that will give a set of orders that is like we're getting shot out from down there and he'll just get on the radio and say get down there and take care of it and that then it goes perfectly yeah and Versus someone that is stuttering and is all over the place or is trying to give unnecessary information, Mm. then it doesn't go as well. And like I say, the outcome is the same. The team leaders are going to take control and the guys are going to go do it. The team commander doesn't really have that much influence other than his posture and how he holds himself together. If you ever want to see, it's a movie, like it's fictional, of course, but it's the movie Aliens, like the second movie. And um, they basically go into this hostile off-world planet where the aliens are nesting in this nuclear reactor. Mm-hmm. And then when they – have you seen it before? Yeah. Bill, yeah. Are, you, are you about to quote Bill Paxton? Not, No, not that part, but that is a perfect How do I part. get out of this chicken shit unit? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's not Bill Paxton part. It's the original part where they first go in and they're in that um, armoured personnel carrier yeah. and like shit starts to unfold around all the troops and the original – uh, leader who has no place being there, like he's a simulated leader. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to take control of the situation. Yeah. And they're asking him for options. And then he's, you can see him, he just starts panicking and he's starting to unfold in this uh, anxious state. And then Ripley pulls the mic off him and she starts like telling everybody exactly what to do because she's been in this shit yeah, storm yeah. by herself when she originally survived it. But she, because she's calm and determined, everyone starts to take um, command from her where the original guy goes, hey, what are you doing? And then he re-grabs it from her and then his poor leadership and his poor control starts sending everybody into a panic again and nobody yeah. knows what they're doing and, it, and it's a disaster. So we've talked about books a little bit on this uh, podcast. Yeah. I've always bit my tongue, but this is the time to to mention it. The best book I've ever read in my entire life Starship Troopers? Starship Troopers. I was waiting. I was actually waiting for that. (laughs) And I was thinking about that the other day. Yeah. And so people, I've mentioned it a few times in different forums. It is, now, people think of the movie and the movie is not a good representation of the book. It's not similar at all. Well, the the vagueness of the story is roughly similar and a couple of characters have the same name, but that's about it. Um, It is one of the best books on leadership and- um, well, leadership is its core thing, but it, 
on how to be fair to people, uh, how to lead a good life, a, a worth a worthwhile life, and understanding what is important to you and to others, and and where you fit into the world. And I think as a it's required reading on a course that I did. It's a it really is considered a leadership manual in the army, but. It is for dog trainers. I think I I draw so much from that book. Mm. It's set in a future, and it is exactly like the movie where they're at war with these bugs. But the bugs are a metaphor for an enemy. It's not that like it's because it's so that anybody on the planet can read that book, and you don't have to say identify with a good guy and a bad guy. The humans are the good guys. The bugs are the bad guys. Yep. So that, yep. that's why he chose that. Yep. And so. It's about how to treat people, how to select people, how to train people. And all of that is totally transferable to dogs. And there's there's quotes in there that I've posted before. Like there's there's a part where he's at the school. What's interesting is the guy in it, his career in the military somewhat reflected mine, which is why I found it very interesting, especially mm. at the time I was reading it. And I actually changed my some of my career goals to be more in line with things I read from the book when I was in the army. But anyway, it, there's many parts in it that are highly relevant to training of dogs, giving the time, exactly all the things we've spoken about here, clear guidance, giving them time to learn things for themselves, creating as much pressure as you need to, but never so much, but also being fair and and identifying like, hey, this is not for you. There's a lot of things, mm. especially in the working dog world, I feel like there's a really good passage where a guy gets kicked out of the unit and they talk about how like maybe we saved his life for kicking him out because he wasn't suitable. And so it's not fair on him. It's not yep. fair on the people that he'll be around. And I think about that a lot when I see people trying to train dogs for a task that the dog isn't enjoying. And I yep. think you're doing this for you, not for the dog. And it's not fair on the dog that you ask this of him. Yeah. It can never live up to that expectation. Yeah. So anyway, check out the book, not the movie. <laughs> it was written in the 1950s, right? It was written in the 50s. And mm. so there's a, they actually, there's a part in it where they, they call them cap troopers and they're in these suits of armor and stuff. And he explains, how they fire this mini tactical nuke and then there's a type of rocket that we use in the army and most armies around the world are using them now called a javelin and if you have read starship troopers in, that was written in the 50s you could pick up a javelin and fire it no problem like it was like the guy that created the clue that the targeting system for the javelin obviously read starship troopers and was like oh yeah that'll work and, <laughs> and just put it together because it will you, you will 100 percent. you ha- never having seen everything it, old is new again yeah never mm. having seen it you could pick up this like the latest and greatest missile that mm. you can fire and any random person who's read starship troopers would be able to function it yeah hey i just want to add something on this is that we've talked a little bit about mental health and as a caveat i just want to say in no way shape or form am i a certified practitioner in mental health i'm not qualified to give information on it in a professional sense and i don't downplay it for people who are suffering any type of mental health issues Mm. if you are and there's plenty of people i've met in the dog training industry and i know that at times myself i've had those type of issues if you are go and speak to somebody and get proper help We've often had Bertie on the show and we're going yeah, to have gonna her say, on. Yeah, I going to talk to Bertie. Yeah, well, Bertie's a, a great person to speak to because she's hovering in between the best of both worlds. She has been involved in the in the pet industry and also she's a practicing psychologist. We're teeing up something again and perhaps the question of anxiety we'll, we'll speak to Bertie about because yeah. she's been dealing with people in anxious states and she'd be a better person to give a better qualified answer on that. Mm -hmm. I have dealt with a lot of anxious dogs in the past, a lot. Um, We have a lot of anxious dogs that come here in the kennels. I have to deal with them at night, dogs that I've never met before in my life that I'll go down there in the middle of the night, the worst possible time to actually go and meet one of these dogs. Mm -hmm. 
And my advice is it's an old scout saying, slowly, slowly, catchy monkey. Mm. And I deal the same way with aggression that I do with anxious or dogs that are suffering some sort of behavioral issue is that I never rush these dogs like a bull at a gate. That is the worst. That's the worst advice anybody could probably ever give you. I always take it nice and slowly with these dogs. I'm very careful around them because, number one, I don't want to reward or push the dog back into a more anxious state. I don't want to reward the dog for being anxious, but I also don't want to push the dog into realizing that anxiety is the thing that's keeping it going. Yeah, you don't want to merit it. Yeah, I don't want to merit it. Yeah, great choice of words. So those are those are small things that I suggest that people take note of. And uh, like I said, yeah, I think Bertie would be a great person to um, have a chat with that about in mm. a future episode. I think we've got something coming up soon. Pat- she does Skype stuff from all she, so Yeah, she does. You can contact her from all over the world. Well, right? she's got her pause in life in both pause as in, you know, like hit the pause button and pause as in dog pause that she's doing. So clever. Very clever, you know. That's, so clever. That's why she's earning the big dollars, yeah. I guess. We were very lucky to have a great friend in Bertie. Speaking of which, I just want to say, you know the day that it was her birthday? Mm-hmm. This is the type of person that she is. I, I want to, I'm not trying to embarrass her or anything like this, but I, I do want to point out, you've got friends in life and acquaintances and stuff like that. And this, there's a difference between what a friend is and what an acquaintance is. And the day that it was Bertie's birthday, Narelle and Bertie are, are great friends. They really, and as we all are, you and I are great friends with Bertie. Mm-hmm. So the more we've gotten to know her, she's just an, an amazing person. And the day that we were supposed to go around for her birthday, we got horrendous floods here at at Dural, at Pet Resorts. And, I mean, it was a joke how much water came in within an hour of rain. We were evacuating dogs out of kennels and, you know, we were working well into the night to get the kennels back into some sort of order. And there was nothing we could do about it. I mean, it was almost the point where we were thinking about getting out of here entirely. Mm -hmm. The whole area of Dural was just getting flooded. There was lightning strikes around the property. It was absolute tumultuous and Narelle was out in the kennels helped me clean she's awesome you know she was backing me right up and it was uh it was a shit situation it was it happened to be the night that was Bertie's birthday and Dan was cooking a beautiful brisket you were there yeah. um, Lauren Hoyle was there and we were supposed to be there as well Narelle was really disappointed that she couldn't go around there she was you know a- as was I we were looking forward to it we'd gotten changed and everything it was just after we'd finished NDTF so um we we're just about to head around there and this, this shit storm broke out. So we profusely apologized to Bertie. She wouldn't hear anything of it. She said, no, of course, you know, your duty is to absolutely being in that situation. I totally, totally understand. And, um, you know, like she, I was saying, oh, it's a shame. We were really looking forward to your company and spending your time with you and, you know, of course, eating Dan's beautiful brisket. The next day, Bertie and Dan arrived with a plate full of brisket. <laughs> it's her goddamn birthday. Yeah, yeah. And because she didn't want us to miss out, they drove all the way out here, like it's an hour drive out here from yeah. where they live, with um, a little a, a little box of brisket and sauce and everything like that, yeah. and some beers and everything like that. I mean, that's the type of person that's you know, like I can't tell you how much I appreciated yeah, that. That's cool. And like I said, I don't want to I don't want to embarrass Birdie or anything like that. But you know, there are there are people in your life who they'll take a lot from you, and there's there's people in your life who will give a lot and yeah, yeah. Bertie is a lovely person very genuine she really stands by like she practices what she preaches you know it's not a facade with Bertie it's a she's the real deal yeah 100%. so Bertie I love you I really appreciate what you did and who you are and everything about you so that was actually a little bit of a 
I was a bit emotional at that, to be honest, because I kept thinking, it's her birthday. She drove out to make us still feel part of it. Mm. You're awesome. You, sir, are lucky there was any brisket. I know. That's what I I ate it till I was sick. (laughs) I would have. And then I'm I'm like a Labrador that, like, as I'm continuing to eat it, I'm like, you even filled your dessert stomach. Yeah. I'm like, why am I doing this? As I'm (laughs) I'm eating it, I can't help it. Yeah. No, no, she's awesome. She is awesome. Thank you, Birdie. Thank you, Birdie. All right. Let's wrap it up. Mm. So some cool stuff there. And also we managed to actually talk about dogs a little bit. So that's great. Next week, we finally have Mr. Michael Ellis coming on, we believe. Yeah, we believe. That's the plan. At this stage, it's looking good. As said before, we were supposed to have him on a couple of weeks ago, but he had a a personal issue. Yeah, personal issue arise, which we all do and uh, totally understandable. And uh, Mike's been great at at, uh, communicating with me about it. Yep. And uh, we're really, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are really enjoying looking at having them. Oh, this is our 50th episode. Oh, it is too. It's our 50th episode. We made it to 50 episodes. There you go. It's a a milestone episode. Yeah, that is a big deal for us. Yeah, it is. Congratulations, Glenn. Congratulations, Pat. Thanks for being part of the show. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. No, the show's been good. I, like, I still really enjoy doing it. It's opened up a lot of opportunities for me. I've mm. been getting what I did during the week. Uh, I put up a video on our Facebook page, I think you saw, uh, of I've finally got my act together. There's people are contacting me wanting to sort of learn more, especially after we do some Patreon stuff, which another one should come out in a couple of days. And um, it's sounding good too. Yeah. I just, um, I just cut it up last night and- um, as I said to you when you got here today, it was one of those episodes where the flow was really good. Mm. Like sometimes I'll have to cut like maybe 10, 15 minutes out of an episode just to ramble and, mm. you know, just things that just don't sound relevant when I listen back to it. But this was actually really good. The only thing that I was trimming up was just a few gaps and some ums and ahs. Mm. But the the content of it, I actually really like it. Yeah, cool. It's Pat's um, triangle model yeah, that so he that'll... used with um, – that he That um, triangle will be out soon. And so what, mm. what's what been really cool is that – well, for me anyway, from the podcast is that a lot of people have been contacting me. You know, I'm in New Zealand this weekend doing a, mm. a seminar for those guys for an IPO club there. I've um, been getting contacted from all over the world, people wanting to either get me out to teach them stuff or to do Skype calls to sort of clarify things I've spoken about before. And what's been actually really cool is I almost feel like, I, um, well, no, <laughs> I was going to say I should be paying people, but I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> but I've just been having some really fun conversations with people that have been contacting me for lessons and picking my brain. I really enjoy defending my position. I do yep. that. I like that a lot. And I, I'm open to being having my mind changed about things. And so I like when people say, but what about this? But what about this? I enjoy that. And so- mm. um, And this, that's been that's been a really cool part of this journey, isn't it? It yeah. is that we're, we're meeting more people like that, like they're coming out of the woodwork left, yeah. right and center. Yeah. And- it's nice to have um, intelligent conversations with intelligent people. Yeah. Like we're meeting some fantastic people through this. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about your exposure to people. I'm telling you, I'm getting bombarded with questions about aggressive dogs these days. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's our job. We talk about it here. Yeah. And then when people want to know, what, what I've found is that people have been really good with me and that now people understand if. I give out to the generic information here and for specifics, they might want to have to book in a session. And so I finally got my act together and set up a, a better consultation type process where people can select a time. Like mm. what I did, it was someone did it to me and then I stole the whole system from them. But uh, I send a link to people and they get access to my diary. It's got all spots. They just click it but pay their money and then we organize the session. So that's yeah. really cool. So if you're interested in that, get in contact because um, it's a great way to ex- expand on what things we've spoken about here. I resisted doing it for a long time. In fact, I flat out said I wouldn't do it. 
but I just got to the point where you, you, you got need to, to. Yeah, I think you need to because what we're talking about on the podcast and what we're doing in a lot of these situations, whether you do like NDTF or anything, it's it's a tapas dish basically. Yeah. It's a lot of little bits well, which will never give you the full satisfaction of eating the, the entire dish. The catalyst for me finally setting that up was uh, I heard on another podcast someone saying about you need to stop telling people what your business is and just make your business what people want from you. And yep. I was like, oh, yeah, well, that's what people have been asking for. So I finally set it up and that's that's working out pretty well. So mm. if you want to get in contact with some lessons uh, online, yeah, shoot us a message. All right, we'll wrap it up. Yeah. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you're hearing, like, rate, share, subscribe on whatever subscription service you download us from. The best way you can support the show is to tell some people about it. But also, if you would like to head over to Patreon, it's patreon.com and then just type in the canine paradigm find us there and you'll be able to pledge as much or as little as you like anybody that gives us more than three bucks a month gets access to patreon only content and we are letting that out every month a new educational episode and that'll be out in a couple of days and whatever else we think of if we get if we get too drunk and do a podcast and don't want to <laughs> don't want to release it to the public the reason we put that one out people asked and the patreon people are going to hear why we did it but we had there was some really interesting and good dog talk conversation going on in this and a this, really cool room full of people. Yeah, and some you know high level dog trainers in a room. Mm. But you would never want anybody who say you got referred to the podcast. You would never want that to be the <laughs> first time they listen to it because I was so drunk I could barely talk. And <laughs> so we put it out to the Patreon people who we know know us and would find the diamonds in the rough mm. uh, rather than just going, oh, my God, Pat's slurring his words. Yeah. Pat, um, Pat's focus with this whole podcast is to make sure we've just got a best of album. Yeah. <laughs> there will be garage tapes, that's for sure. Um, all right. I think I've given the whole wrap up. Yeah. Music.